1: Welcome to New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. I'm Dr. Matt Thompson, your host for today, and I'll be talking to Dr. Chris Fleming. Chris is Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at the Western Sydney University in Sydney, Australia, where he's also a member of the Writing and Society Research Centre. He's the author of the acclaimed memoir On Drugs, which has been published by Giramondo in 2019, just a few months back. And Chris has written widely on literature, philosophy, and culture. His most recent academic book is Modern Conspiracy, The Importance of Being Paranoid, which Bloomsbury put out in 2014. Uh, Chris is also a translator of René Girard, another French writers and philosophers. He edits a book series on Girard's work, wrote a book about Girard for Polity in uh, 2004. Chris also writes fiction and poetry. He's published a graphic novel. He's written for publications such as The Guardian, The Sydney Review of Books, The Conversation, The Chronicle Review and LitHub. He has fiction coming out in Westerly and he has journalism coming out in the LA Review of Books. But today, I'll be discussing with Chris his uh, memoir from a few months back called On Drugs. This is a pretty out there book. Uh, It's about Chris, who is uh, not just a writer, translator, philosopher, uh, philosophy teacher, but also a junkie, a drug addict. He spent years and years while teaching, while writing, while translating and before that, while studying and so on, um, wasted on a variety of things, um, as we'll hear predominantly uh, like pharmacy supplied painkillers, codeine pills, also drinking like you wouldn't believe, um, to the point of drinking methylated spirits if there's nothing else going, um and smoking more pot than Bob Marley could even dream of. So he's still alive. He's clean. Um, uh, Touch wood. Just joking. And Chris um, has written this book on drugs, which looks at that and places it in context of um, his pre-drug psychology as a child, Gripped by compulsive disorders, obsessions um lived in a fantastic but very rule bound world of his own making largely, but then the book also reveals or you know discusses um family backgrounds of substance abuse dependency, and so on that he that he learned of later on um and his scrapes with the law and family disaster. Disaster upon disaster, uh, shock treatments, involuntary committal to psychiatric wards, um, you know, drastic interventions, God knows what. It's all there. Chris is not a wreck. That's the bizarre thing. He's not a wreck. Wreckage everywhere, perhaps in the past, you know, but not a wreck. Anyway, um, I'll. Let the conversation roll. Chris Fleming, speaking about On Drugs.
2: Hi, Matt. Thanks for asking me on today. Look, On Drugs really began life as a rejected essay proposal. Actually, to nitpick, it really started as a slide towards a tedious suicide accompanied by considerable collateral damage, but that'd be starting too far back. And be too melodramatic to do into it. But I'd not been long back, about 10 years ago, actually, from an overseas trip when Ivor Indick, who was the um, editor of the now, sadly, superannuated Australian literary journal Heat, asked if I wanted to write something for Heat. And I quickly put something together, a sketch for this essay on Dostoevsky's The Gambler. And I was going to look at the roles of addiction and masochism and Dostoevsky's fiction and how the protagonists behaved, blah, blah blah, anyway, I thought it was okay, it wasn't spectacular, but I thought it was coherent and um but Ivor was nonplussed, and he basically shot back and said, "What you know asked me point blank why are you writing about that?" And my response was, "Well, you know it's never been considered in the literature before, and this and this, but that wasn't really his question There's, the question was closer to what why are you writing on that?" Uh, what, what was motivating me, I guess, and maybe this picks up a little bit in the quote you started with from I.A. Richards. And so, as you know, like, oh, personal reasons, what personal reasons, and and it got down to, well, I was fascinated with addiction because I was a, you know, I was a drug addict, uh, and um, at various points out of control. And I think what he wanted to do was tap into where the motivation for me writing about the things I was writing about was coming from. And he said, well, why don't you write about that? Which I could barely do. But that's really how it started. It began with a provocation from him. Um and I said I don't I said I don't know whether I want people to read about that. And he said, Oh, well you don't have to decide that now, just write something. So that was really where it began.
1: Okay. And so it's a, it's an account of um you your problem with substances, um and I guess the life structure around that, um, what do you see it as, as, as doing or telling? I mean, your book is, I should say for the listeners who haven't read it yet, that your book is, is not the, um, production line, you know, fill in by colors, junkie memoir. Uh, it's, it's very different. It, It looks at, um, Obsessive-compulsive uh, disorder. It it looks at kind of a life ruled by rules of that are mm. th- th- that can come across as as being um, imposed by curse or fate or or family destiny or um, or God knows what. Like, um, what what is the book about to you?
2: That's a really good question. Look, and I don't know. At one level, it's possibly the hardest question I could be asked. Um, Not just this, but of any academic work is what am I, you know, what am I communicating? I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say in a way, right? But I I do think at some very deep level um, as writers and you're a writer, we don't quite know what we're doing. I mean, there there are obvious things for me, right? One is... In terms of the paint by numbers, addiction memoir, we've got enough of them, um, I reckon. There's probably not much of an excuse of writing another one. But for me, addiction, the way addiction is portrayed in cinema, the way it captures the public imagination, um, there's always a set series of stereotypes around that right you've either got a mafia boss who's kind of snorting cocaine off prostitutes stomachs or you've got some crack house um or you've got you know these kind of standard tropes and for me addiction didn't look anything like that um it was something that was that, that dominated my existence but the existence that i lived looked in at least from the outside Not so abnormal. Um, And so it's that kind of account that I wanted to provide. And part of it, I guess, is just documenting what does that look like. I'm really interested in how other people live. And by live, I don't mean necessarily even the big gestures in their lives. I'm interested in when people get up, what they do, what they eat, what they think about, who they email. You know, these really basic things about how people live. And I think partly that comes from, in me, a really basic sense that I never knew how, that I've never known how to live, um, that I wanted some formula for what to do. But everything, I think, from a very early age to me seemed extraordinarily complicated. Um, and I just wanted to know how, how other people managed to do it. Life seems just unbelievably complicated. Um, so partly it's just documenting what I want to hear from other people a lot of the time, which is... How people go about living their their days, but also reaching out from that and what they're thinking about, and 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 what that thinking looks like, and their relationship to thinking and doing all these kind of very basic things. There are a couple of uh, a couple of things that I was trying to do, I guess.
1: Okay, I should, just to make things, uh, I guess, concrete for the the listeners. So you're an academic. Um, you're, you've been teaching, writing, researching, and for a lot of that time, I mean, this is, you've been doing this for what decades, a lot of that time you were, what, wasted. And um, uh, the problems that you had were, one thing I find particularly interesting about this is it's, it's not heroin, it's not cocaine, uh, it's not methamphetamine. It, it, it's uh, stuff from chemists, from pharmacies. Um, it's alcohol as well. It's marijuana. Uh, it's the, Some of which can be seen as like everyday things. Marijuana is, is now available as a consumer product in a lot of the United States. But you put a very different picture on it from usual. It's not one of the innocent things like lollies or a few drinks or something. It's something that you... Are spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on that you can't really afford, and having to, you know, go through all kinds of trials and tribulations to to keep getting enough to get the money for it. Um, the the pills you start taking that you you get to have a real problem with uh, codeine pills um, requires like mapping out the pharmacies across a major metropolitan area of Sydney to to make sure you're not going back to the same ones too often, um, to buy large packets of 48 pills, you know, painkillers and stuff. Um, it's very elaborate. It's exhausting. Um, it's like so much work, uh, and life when you say life seems unbelievably complicated, my God, it, it like the way you were living was making life unbelievably complicated, you know? And, um, what, what what is addiction to you like what, what what do you i mean do you see it as a, 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 does it have a persona is it is it a presence is it nothing is it a is it a, a void or a sucking need or or is it like a demon of some What is it? What, what yeah, is addiction? Yeah, look, that's
2: uh, these are great questions. Look, I, and you're right. I did – life was very complicated. It was predictable in a way. I mean, there's nothing more monotonous and more predictable than addiction or drug addiction, despite the images of it being exciting and, you know, um, countercultural and, and breaking down boundaries. There is – it's almost the definition of monotony itself, of boredom itself. And, yeah, I was – I needed a very serious approach to acquiring the amount of drugs I was taking because it's really hard to to just get that get that amount of drugs on a daily basis. So I had. Can you
1: can you talk us through? Can you talk us through like a day? What what would happen on a day with the the Nurofen plus the codeine pills and things?
2: Yeah, so I would be, and I cycled through different drugs, but the codeine was really. Big for me. And I originally took it to, uh, you know, kill some pain in shoulder from an old cricketing, like a rotator cuff injury. And it didn't do much for the shoulder, but it changed my attitude towards the pain. You know, like I took it, the pain didn't go away, but I thought, oh, the pain's fine. Gee, this feels pretty good. And I mean, I was never in the habit of just taking one or two tablets of anything ever. Um my, my father remarked once, Fleming's, you know, we don't do moderation if we don't just go for jogs, right we we train for marathons. there's nothing in my family that seems to smack of of a moderate approach to anything generally speaking. so I um immediate I probably took four or six tablets straight up off the bat, and it was an amazing you know, I had an amazing uh response to it physiological existential and and so this built up pretty quickly and I, over the period of time I was averaging yeah about 50 tablets a day and getting 50 tablets of a restricted drug every day you know a drug that sits behind the counter i mean now you can't get it without a prescription but at the time you could buy it but it was behind the counter and you had to provide justification for why you were doing it and so you can't just turn up You know, I couldn't turn up to the same pharmacy every day, just ask for another pack of 48. I had to vary my approach. I had to remember who was serving me. Um, I had to target particular kinds of people, you know, so casual employees were generally more relaxed about what they sold, or they were more preoccupied. If I was approaching pharmacists, I wanted to have my story set out, you know, all the symptoms that I needed to say. Um, I needed to remember where and when I bought my last pack from there and why I might be turning up again. And, you know, I go in the book in the book through all the different stories I would tell about this stuff. Now, to what extent these people believed me, I don't know. Um, but it worked at least for a long time. But it means that, you know, even taking the maximum amount and also bear in mind that you're not supposed to take this over a long period of time. And I was taking it for years. So that was, you know, that's a pretty elaborate approach. But addiction itself, there are a few things that I see as absolutely uh, central to it. So in the case, there is an element of physiological adaptation, right? what what people would call tolerance. So, you know, anyone who takes a, um, a painkiller will develop, if it's a codeine-based painkiller, will develop a kind of tolerance to it and will, and will produce withdrawal symptoms if they take that drug for more than a few weeks. But this is only a small part of what I see as addiction. For me, an addiction is any kind of repetitive pattern that I use to stop feeling like crap. And the problem is that those adaptations, the behaviours, the drugs or whatever, the, the acting out, as we say, produ- ends up producing some really bad effects um, and so then you have the resolution to stop doing it and then you have that resolution fail and you keep going and generally it gets worse resolution to stop resolution fails so there's a kind of sense of feeling divided in on you, uh, oneself of of wanting to stop doing something of feeling like something is necessary But wanting to stop, trying to stop and having those resolves and life eventually spirals out of control on that basis. Um, And, I mean, I I can only say that why would you, you know, what was I getting relief from? It was just feeling shit, just feeling bad, just feeling lonely, sad, bored in pain, grief, um, whatever, you you know, all these negative states and just wanting any way out of that kind of anguish and drugs for certain people can be pretty good um, at achieving that in the short term.
1: And when you're talking about the anguish um, or that that the drugs are a a relief from, I mean, do you at all as a philosopher see this in philosophical terms with like Sartre's nausea or angst or uh, anything like this? I mean, Is it a, are drugs uh, for you a solution to a existential problem?
2: Yeah, I think so, but it gets very muddy, right? Like I think that's the, it's very tricky to untangle. So for me, a lot of the existential stuff arises in relation to certain emotional upsets and then the emotional upsets come on the existential angst, right? So, um, I don't think that any philosophy is ever produced in a vacuum that, and not just a historical vacuum, but really in an emotional vacuum in a life circumstance vacuum, you know, so I, my attraction to certain kinds of philosophy um, really went up after a big breakup I had in my mid twenties, you know, there's this, it's almost embarrassing to admit, but this interplay between ostensibly objective views about the world or what, you know,
1: a young guy will think of are... Oh, Chris, the, the sound has gone a bit strange. Are you, have you moved away from No,
2: the... it could be a battery or something. Do you want me to see if I can change the headphones or something?
1: Oh, it's sounding good now. I was oh, is it? It's just going bing, bing, bing for you. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, now? How's that? Yeah, now's good. Okay, so where was I up to? Sorry.
1: <laughs> uh, you had a bad breakup.
2: Oh, yeah. So there's, you know, there's that, um, this interconnection between you know personal trauma and and what I ended up thinking was some objective view about the world, and so yeah, it is really i think they are related and in the in an inverse kind of way, I think that reading certain kinds of philosophy when I was in recovery recovery were was really important to me um so the work of a contemporary French thinker, Pierre Hadot, and and um, some of the Stoics and so on; these things were integral to getting my head straight. Um, and it wasn't always clear to me why, though. This was the other interesting thing: is that I couldn't I couldn't understand why some of these things were um, salves at the time I was reading them. But yeah, I think there is a connection. And I suppose that's the other thing about the book for me: there's no really genuine distinction or no neat distinction between personal experience and a broader kind of mode of thinking. I think all all human thinking is moving between the concrete and the abstract all the time. We're always generalising from our experience or we're going the other way. We're taking some principle and we're thinking about it in terms of our life. And I, maybe I do that in a particular way, but I, I think that that, is always what's happening in human existence, is this transition between concrete, particular lives, experiences, traumas, joys, or whatever, and broader, more abstract ideas, and this interplay between these two things. And I realise that's a slightly abstract answer, but I believe it.
1: Well, it, it just makes me think, of. I think Nietzsche writes somewhere that if you want to know about a religion, Forget about the theology and talking to the, you know, to people about theology. Go to the actual uh, practicing faithful or whatever the the people of the whatever church and and just see what they how they live, what they do, and that teaches you as much about a religion as as looking at the theology that you know operates on high.
2: Yeah, uh, I think so. Like I, I, I'm absolutely with that. I mean, Wittgenstein would say something very similar, right? The idea is now we think of we, we disconnect, say religious utterances from the ritual context in which made, they may They tend to make sense, and that it's only or, or we treat them as hypotheses. You know, this is the idea of the new atheists. Is you treat it. You treat every religious utterance as if it were some kind of abstract scientific hypothesis about the cosmos. Rather, something that's embedded in a particular way of life and a, and a particular series of practices. I don't think it's just true of religion either. I think it's a, it's true of human speech more generally. As soon as we start abstracting out the way people talk from the way they live, um, I think we're making a pretty grievous misreading of of what's going on in in people's lives. But yeah,
1: I, I'd say that I'd say the same. I,
2: I, I'd agree with that. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Another thing I'd like to ask is, uh, as as an academic, a scholar, um, you know, someone who grades papers applies rationality. Has or does the your being as a you know as an addict, does that give you, um, or how does that influence your relationship with the irrational? Like, do, do you believe that irrationality uh is is a as potent or or um uncontrollable uh, like a force in life as as one might believe or or, or less or more like where where yeah. do you sit in relation to it
2: look i think it's it's um uh, I mean, irrationality, one of the great things is it can dress itself up as reason anytime it wants and, and yes. it can look yep. I mean this is one of the this is one of the appeals to me of things like data and surrealism is there's an extraordinary logic in how they go about doing these these particular formal exercises in madness. And the Ulupo is that other, you know, literary movement that applies very strict rules to what look like completely deranged Um, narratives, right? So, and in another sense too, is that I used reason and the capacity for debate and rational interchange to protect um, my addiction to from scrutiny from cr- outside criticism. Um, that if someone wanted to challenge me about it, they'd have to engage me in a debate, and uh, most of the time, I'm pretty good in debate.
1: So, like, what would be an example of that? Like, what would the what, what would you debate? I mean, what would there be well, a debate?
2: Well, would, someone would you know say, do you think you've got a problem? You know, with drugs, you you might have a have an addiction, and of course, my response to that would be, well, addiction is a particular form of of labelling and and um, you know stigmatising uh, human life that we consider abnormal. Um, that you know, aren't aren't you addicted to X, Y, and Z? Uh, what about my life seems to you uh, pathological? I'm I'm writing books and I've I've got a good job and I'm studying and I've got friends um isn't addict, you know that that could be one approach right so you could do the french post-structuralist you know foucault approach to power knowledge structures a disciplinary. you could do a kind of critique of the 12 steps as a quasi theological program yeah i could you know any number of ways i could do a counter-attack um that addiction is not really an illness in the sense that you know the the family of cancers are an illness it's a metaphor and so until you realize that, don't bother talking to me about addiction. You know, seriously, my punchbacks would be quite hard. And they're all rationalizations that kind of very uh, ended up being very well-bolstered forms of madness. But in order to get me to the table to talk about that stuff, a lot of the time people would have to get through that. And not many people were willing to get through it. I
1: mean, I'm exaggerating
2: in a way. I mean, I did have some very open-hearted conversations about this stuff when my guard was down. But Um, If nothing was, you know, almost nothing was more uh, important to me than protecting the addiction and uh, I would pull out every um, capacity I had in order to defend it. And that included debate and discussion. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and so I'm not exactly sure always where to draw the line between reason and unreason. Um, I don't think there is a neutral Measure of rationality that we can apply in all circumstances. Again, I'm like I'm close to Wittgenstein on this. There's no, there's no reason as this generic ruler that can assess all human action with one particular metric. But, um, so, but I do, I do believe there are forms of craziness, and 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 I've exhibited a lot of them over time, and hopefully I'm I'm getting better at least in myself. To figure out which ones are the uh, productive forms of craziness and which are the uh, destructive ones.
1: Okay, that I mean, do you? It seems like if you have, as you describe in in your book on drugs, um, uh, battling, debating, you know, there's that great scene in it where um, you are outsmarting, out debating everybody, you know, at the at the rehab center until. What does the guy say to you like it's that oh, scene I where mean, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah like he, he a counselor basically says look you know if you if, if you've come here to win fights you know win debate people then you can go cuz you you going to beat me in a debate but did you come here to do that and we can print you a certificate he says as you know best debater in rehab won all the arguments um we'll we'll print this for you you can go home but I thought you might have come here to get better um and that was a really <laughs> that was a really intense thing for him to say and it, and it revealed my own i mean it's incredibly arrogant right but um, a, a, my own approach to all of this is just uh you know, wildly arrogant and his whether it was strategic or real or what it was but it it did produce a kind of tear in my own armor um in approaching this and it wasn't just i mean there's some there's still something sincere right the way i'm presenting it as if you know i'm just going around defending something uh, that's completely mad the fact is though is that I, i did need someone to produce some tear somewhere in that armor um, I couldn't adopt ideas that I thought were crazy, irrational, counterproductive simply because I wanted to believe them. You know, belief is not that easily willed. Um, but the problem was that I had such armor that it was very difficult to get through that. And yeah, that was a really, was one council actually that ended up doing a number of very, uh, had a number of interesting exchanges with over time. But yeah, that I think was a real um, shifting point. For me, um, in how I thought about what I was doing there um, and what I thought recovery looked like, right? I thought recovery meant basically agreeing to a certain series of propositions. You know, it was like, you know, the, uh, figuring out the solution to addiction was like solving a puzzle, like a really com- like the Enigma code or um, a really complicated crossword puzzle. And once you had all the information there and you'd figured out the solution, then you're basically you know, cure it. it's a mad idea, um, but that's what I thought it was, and I started to get some sense—not what recovery was necessarily, but at least my idea of how to get well was not. Um, that wasn't that wasn't on the money, even vaguely.
1: Is it submission? Like, it, is submission a, a, an answer?
2: Yeah, I think I, I think partly it is. I mean, we're always submitting to things. We're always inheritors of, of whatever it is, our language, our concepts, our ideas, however much we would like to think of ourselves as these individuals who will not submit, we're always submitting, we're always slaves to something, we're always um indebted to um our own pasts, uh our you know, the 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 history of our culture and all these kinds of things. And so it then becomes a question of, of of what we're going to submit to now, but for me it also meant just a series of practices, right? Like really concrete things, not just um, ideas, but like get up and maybe try to get up and have a shower, like really, you know, eat 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 decent food, talk to people. Um, these incredibly basic things. So it's submission to a series of practices, putting myself in particular situations so that maybe things happen differently because of what I'm doing, not just what I'm thinking.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
1: one one thing I I was wondering about from the book or was contemplating was building on what you're saying there um, so you, you you know you're hyper articulate uh, hyper rational you've got um, a situation where you're entering that is very in rehab i'm talking about which is very cliched you know the uh it's it's a series of you know obvious tropes um and the what people are going to say what you're going to say back it's almost like it's all kind of a predetermined sc- script but as you're saying just then you know practice practice kind of has Needs to have primacy over ideas. It's it's almost like just do it anyway, even if it's cliched, stupid. Um, you know, it's easy to dismiss as hokey or whatever, or pseudo pseudo religious or something. But just give in and do, just follow these practices, and things will kind of get better um, for a while. Um, does that is that like a challenge to you as an academic and as someone who gets students in? to talk about ideas that they have, you know, they're 18 years old, they're turning up at Western Sydney Uni to study, you know, philosophers, continental philosophy, whatever, and their lives are largely unfilled in at this point. Um, So it's like ideas before practice a lot of the time, rather than sort of, you know, university of the third age level where you might be teaching philosophy to largely mature older students. is is this kind of primacy of practice over idea in your life itself to get it on track a challenge to your life as a teacher and academic
2: yeah I think it is I think it is and and I mean it's what it, you can say primacy of practice, but for me, it's the links between certain ideas, certain kinds of enunciations regimes of statements whatever you want to call them and a certain way of living something may not make sense to you until a certain range of practices right so i mean even if you take something like sport a you know wisdom's gruel uh, um book of cricket rules is not going to mean anything to you really until you've been playing the game for a while and most people can play cricket fees without even having a look at it but you can at least say that the sense of those statements whatever you assess and however you assess them you, you can't even really understand them until you've put your body in a certain c- circumstance and i think that's true of a lot of recovery speak too is is that none of it's not going to have its sense um until it is uh, enunciated or established in relation to some kind of particular way of living now it's true right and with regard to the students and sometimes what interests me is, is students say things that they can't possibly <laughs> think um because they'll, they'll line up a series of statements that are either flat, flatly contradictory or they um they assert something that i've got a very strong suspicion that the student can't possibly believe and it turns out afterwards when i ask them about it they don't but they have this idea that the discourse is floating free of anything now I don't know why whether this is an era of social media where people can say anything in such a way that it needn't have any um, connection to anything outside of itself, but that does that does interest me, and I mean, I'm talking about myself now as if you know everything's in the past I mean this is still my tendency to run off in my head and and um and spiral out these baroque patterns of thought that that have their own coherence but aren't related to anything outside themselves so you know, I um, I don't want to give the impression that that's, that's how I am. But, yeah, so I think for me, partly it's a matter of of sense and partly um, – but it's also partly not expecting too much. You know, I want – if students are getting a genuine joy out of thinking and reading and writing and and something about that fires them up or excites them, I'd say go for it. You know, and I love seeing – I love seeing that. And if that produces nonsense sometimes, <laughs> it's fine. You know, like they got they got time to live. Um, hopefully, they got time to live.
1: Okay. And, and going back to that Richard's quote, the chief cause of ill-appropriate stereotype reactions is withdrawal from experience. Mm-hmm. To me, that also, I, I was thinking of that in terms of... Um, tendency to, to to dismiss what seems cliched from the outside because as you're saying if in sport the bodily experience of doing something that looks repetitive predictable hokey whatever from the outside misses that that full inner um uh, drama that, that that inflates the person from within um in it that that has power and meaning so
2: yeah yeah look and i I think that's and that's because speech is not just about conveying information right like i always thought that what i wanted out of knowledge or speech was more information what i lacked was further knowledge or whatever and what really shocked me was in the early days of recovery when i call my sponsor and he would often say the same things um almost identical things but when he said them to me in that way when I was in that state living the way I was living in early recovery they really landed it was an astonishing realization that the same thing can be said and I know and I knew at various points he was going to say the same thing and they would hit in a way that was Bizarre to me, and it was not just that the information. It's not that I'd learnt anything in any that I could list. Well, you know, like a new fact, right? Now I know the capital of Kenya is Nairobi. Now I'm tomorrow. I'm going to learn the capital of Pakistan. Then the next day, it's not that accumulation. The statement becomes a a ritual in which you keep rehearing or relearning things you haven't forgotten, which sounds like a paradox, but there is that force in some of these statements that this you need to hear various things or I needed to hear various things at various points. And it it, re, it got me to think again about what knowledge is, not just knowledge in life, but it allowed me to read some ancient philosophy very differently. So, for instance, reading some of the Stoics, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, what interested me often is that you have the repetition of the same point in various ways throughout a work, and I sort of wonder, like why are you doing this but if you have a different conception of what these books were trying to do and the context in which they were being read it suddenly becomes much more comprehensible about what speech what writing would have meant in that circumstance um mm. yeah
1: it's it's to me it brings to mind incantation and even in poetry, or something like like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's "The Raven," this repetitive incantation of of the raven and nevermore, and all this, it just keeps building and building. And you know, we we hear things differently at different points in our life. The same statement can mean a thousand different things at a thousand different times, uh, because of our ability to absorb one thing or not another. Um, which brings to mind. Um, There's more I want to ask you about with On Drugs, and one of them is your, is your interest, um, professional and intellectual interest in mimetic desire, the ideas of um, Girard, does does that overlap or infuse here? And um, could could you perhaps just tell us on the way into that, just define mimetic desire for the listeners and introduce Girard just very briefly?
2: Yeah, sure. So, Girard had this idea that he reads out of literature initially that how are we going to theorise how human beings desire, how we want things? And there are a whole series of rival explanations about this. The chief one, a rival in a way, although you don't have to necessarily read it as a rival, would be Freud's idea um, that our desiring is related through, you know, it comes out of a primal scene of infancy and the Oedipal complex and all this. Anyway, Girard comes up with a much more parsimonious idea is that we end up desiring what we desire because other people desire it or we think they do anyway. So desire is imitative. It is mimetic. It is, it is um, we copy the desires of others, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And it's not just desire, it's how we inhabit a culture. Right? We, one of the, the first things that a human infant is capable of doing is imitating the facial expressions of those around him or her and this happens within hours of birth it's an astonishing thing so Girard says desire partakes in that now it's an incredibly simple idea but the implications of that become very very interesting and and, um, uh, and can be fleshed out in a number of different ways in terms of psychopathology and 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 um, you know the analysis of culture and the analysis of literature it's a really interesting and very um, generative model of thinking, I think. Anyway, so yeah, I did. Uh, I was very, very interested in that. And I think there are very strong links between models of desire and my own addictive, um, you know, my own addictive behavior. The, the But for me, Gerard doesn't factor enough in about you know, human embodiment and 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 a whole lot of other things I think are crucial to thinking about this stuff. But yeah, there are um, uh, really profound links I think there. Now, I didn't when I got into Girard and started reading him, I, I wasn't aware that this was why I was reading. Him. It was really interesting to me because it was such a fantastic theory, and again, partly because Girard was making sense, he was able to explain a lot of human culture in my mind and literature and have uh, present these quite simple models of, of things that were very interesting in the way that you could apply them in comprehending the world I mean it's it's that um, yeah it was there's a real intellectual excitement um, I got when I first started coming across his work um, in the 90s actually so
1: yeah and uh... There's such, um, I don't know, grief and pain in your accounts of things going so terribly, terribly wrong over so long um, with with the substances. I mean, you've got encounters with the police, confusion, madness, psychosis, um, hospitalizations, electric um, shock therapy, you know, which we can get to and so on. But is, you know, we talk, you place um, Freud in a kind of opposition with Girard here. Um, Freud. Uh, is that too painful? Like is, is Gerard in a way a kind of a mindless or, or, or that's probably the wrong word, but an escape from the self into um, a world of, of like being, you know, blowing in the wind with everybody else through ideas and finding you're saying or doing and repeating, wanting what other people have. Is that, is that like getting up out of a primordial depth, that irrational unconscious base of the you know primal human? Is it escapism it's for you? A great,
2: a it's a great it's a great question. Yeah, and I think I, you know, I've started to become more and more interested in psychoanalysis um, because of what people can do with some of that work. Adam Phillips, who I've been reading recently, does some really amazing stuff um, with Freud's work. And so I think again, in terms of the usefulness of it is, is how how you can look at it, how you can apply it. And you're right, Giraud doesn't have a very serious notion of an unconscious. I mean, he's got me um, connaissance, like these ideas of like miscomprehension or misunderstanding or mistake or, but he doesn't have a depth psychology um, in the way that Freud does. And he doesn't have, say, a notion quite of trauma that you can get in psychoanalysis. And so, yeah, there could be a real evasion in that. And there, are, there are fascinating thinkers. Martha Reinecke um, in the US has done some great work at the intersection uh, between Girard and, and um, uh, Freud's work. I mean, Kristeva is very aware of Girard's writing and it, and it comes out in some places in her own work. So there are very interesting connections there. But, yeah, I think maybe there was there this terror. I mean, I have lived in terror of my own mind since I was a child. Anyone who's got serious OCD um, and I had auditory hallucinations as a child uh, I think ends up developing a very, um, you know, Terrified relationship with their own mind. For me, knowledge was is often a form of control, of being able to to know things is to be able to control them, to understand is to be able to control, because everything seemed to me so often out of control. And you're right, I've wound up in some pretty desperate situations, sectioned in a psychiatric hospital, electroshock, um, all sorts of uh, things, some very heavy antipsychotic medications um over time that yeah so my relationship with my own mind although in a way it's the way i've made a career it hasn't always been a friendly one and not on you know on more than one occasion i've kind of wanted to have a new nervous system um yeah
1: well it's i mean there are some powerful tales in on drugs of of this child that 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 you were or or will be if time's going backwards, um, but could you just tell us, give us a, a quick portrait of yourself as a child and what the auditory hallucinations were, and what it was like being you at at this young age?
2: Yeah, look, I, I, and this is all obviously reconstruction, and but I, I can. There is still a felt sense of of what it was like. I mean, I was OCD in that, in a kind of very classic sense of you know, counting things and assigning. Um, values to numbers in a simple way, most of the time, if not all of the time, it, the system got quite complex, but, you know, odd numbers are bad, even numbers are good and coordinating my breathing with my thinking. So having to breathe out at various points of transition, you know, when lights are going out or leaving the house or then and coordinating thoughts with numbers, with breathing. And if I didn't coordinate the thought, you know, pleasant thought, I'd have to think a pleasant thought on an even number on an out-breath while switching up the light. So, you know, if I didn't, if a bad thought came into my head, I'd have to um, compensate with a new series of good thoughts, um, obsessive washing of hands until they, you know, bled. Um, But also other symptoms that I'm not, I haven't come across really is I, I used to think I had a huge string attached to my back that could get tangled on anything and I needed to untangle um, all the time. I also had this experience that I've spoken to neurologists and neuropsychiatrists since that they they told me it's something called delusions of reference where sounds in the outside world would start to change in their, um, not so much sonically change, but their valence or their attitude would change sounds in the outside world would start to sound very hostile to me directed at me and malicious or malevolent Um, and it would be terrifying it's one of these things that is close to impossible to describe it's like trying to describe the color red if you have never seen it before um so i'm the the phenomena still slips through my fingers as i try to articulate it but that was um that was that so those were some of the um, emotional mental challenges that i lived with on a daily basis from a very very early age probably seven or eight um and were at their heights in my early teenage years um so yeah they it was and you know i lived in terror I i was um, I mean, a lot of people get bullied and so on, but I was—I was bullied pretty severely for many, many years. I was skinny and effeminate, and, um, and this,
1: But this people... is just for the the mm-hmm. listeners' sake. So, as you're describing on drugs, this is all before drugs, right? Like, so your um, you know, the auditory hallucinations, the the valence, the, um, the freaking out about all that, the tension, the terror. The, I mean, this is. This can sound like someone's had way too much acid or pot or something, but this is before all that, right? Like, this is you stone cold sober. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. This is, this is like, I didn't, I didn't even have a cup of tea till I was like, you know, 16 or something, you know. I, I, so no, I was, um, this was all stuff that my mind was producing without any intoxicants uh whatsoever and the effect was though that people often did think i was on drugs Uh, especially in my teenage years um people thought there were two drug interventions actually um which i thought were hysterical because i didn't even i'd never had a coffee before and people thought i was just out of my mind um high um and you can probably see i can look back and see why they did think that but i've had more people think i'm on drugs when i'm not than people think that i've been on drugs when i am uh, often when i was high people couldn't tell um but there's it's one of those strange really strange um you know one of those of kind of paradoxes that that, yeah, I, I get taken for being on drugs when I'm not. Even now, um, in the last few years, it's happened. I, but maybe that's because I've marked myself as, a, as an ex-drug user and people suspect it. I don't know. But.
1: And, and, and one who, who lied, right, to cover it. So with your family or, or covering it when you're working at, at universities um, and to the chemists themselves to get the, the drugs, um, it requires acting, um, you know, camouflage of kinds,
2: uh, yeah yeah absolutely because the and the the reason there is if if um I admitted that I was on drugs in the the amount that I was taking, then it's the end of then then there's another obstacle to taking them because then people are looking and trying to stop me from taking them or trying to interfere with the supply so the uh not a, i mean a couple of friends knew i mean no one knew the whole picture not um and part of that, I think part of the secrecy is the addiction too, right? Like having something just for myself, having my own world. Um, but a large part of it is just protecting the supply. And, yeah, so from outright lying to bending the truth, so saying, you know, I, I take fewer than what I take or any any strategy um, I mean, short of violence and those kind of, you know, criminal activities, any any activity to to protect the supply. Um, yeah. And lines are a huge part of that. I mean, for years after I stopped using, when I knew someone would be coming over, my first uh, response would be to think, clean up. Uh, you know, like I've got to get the stuff, I've got to hide everything. But of course, there's nothing to hide. Um, so the imprint of addiction lasts for years, and it's, it's it's certainly not something I'm I'm proud of. But I comprehend why I did that on the basis that it was it's a way of protecting the supply.
1: Do um, do you comprehend yourself? Is there one to comprehend? Like I'm looking again. This is Nietzsche on saying, we don't understand much about real living people and generalize very superficially when we attribute to them this character or that, the poet is reflecting this, our very incomplete view of man, when he turns into people, in the sense creates those sketches which are just as superficial as our knowledge of people. So you have, um, have like as a child, got these hallucinations, the the OCD, the, comp- the compulsions. Um, it, how does how can any of this ultimately be explained, or or is it not? Is, is all you can? I mean, like it's a compelling, full, dramatic uh, view of your life. But uh, at, at the end, can anybody? Um, does anybody mean anything? Like, is there any reason for any of this? I mean, you you talk about your family's got a history of addiction. Your, your father stopped drinking. You find out your mother had a secret drinking problem but what is what, what do you put it down to do you, do you revert to belief in fate and things
2: you know I don't I don't know and I mean there there is there, I mean there are some big you know the, the big obvious things are easy to get you know I had a doctor once ask me so the OCD when did that really calm down I, you know I said oh it's really kind of stopped by the time I was 22 23 he said oh when you started taking drugs properly and i was like oh you know so if i can if i can miss something like that then i cannot be entrusted with understanding my own life i do want to understand it but explanation is a strange thing right and sometimes it can be a form of denial um itself rather than copying the experience as an experience in the present moment an attempt to do an etiology or, or some kind of reverse engineering of one state is a way of avoiding where we are. So, that, so for me, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's the general problem too is that I can never, as none of us can, can ever abstract myself from myself and view myself from the outside. I mean, we can. Um, I mean, this part of human consciousness is we can, we're can we the experiencing subject and the object of our own reflection uh, with the eye that looks at itself. But that means we can never um, be impartial, objective um, in the way that we'd be able to do, say, staring at a tree or something like that. And that has, I mean, we could talk for hours about this, the insider-outsider problem in psychology and anthropology. And in some ways that allows us to have a really privileged position to understand our own lives um and in other ways it muddies the water incredibly in in a way that we'll never be able to fully comprehend we'll never have a total picture um of who we are or what we're doing because we're never able to get outside ourselves maybe that's a maybe that's a good thing but there's a difference to me too between explaining something and understanding it, uh, understanding it, being able to describe an experience and, and 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 see its resonances, and then an explanation like a scientific account of why this led to that, led to that, led to that in a causal way. I don't know whether we'll ever be able to get get to that. Um, it's always a temptation for thought though. I can't well, resist it.
1: Um you know sorry about these barrage of quotes, but another one from Eric Auerbach that really comes to mind with your on drugs. He writes to write history is so difficult that most historians are forced to make concessions to the technique of legend, and so you've written a history of yourself, but the the um it it seems like it why what sets it apart from you know, the right by number drug memoir is that you haven't like uh, made great concessions to the technique of legend, and you do allow for um, unknowing and 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 blanks and and gaps in in cause and effect, or, or there being no cause and effect at times that necessarily that can be seen or touched or anything. Um, did, was it a struggle for you? Or, or or did it, did you have to think a lot about the structure of the book and how to approach it and what form it should take?
2: Yeah, look, structure is not a real strong suit of mine <laughs> when it comes to writing. I don't think I think I deal okay at the level of sentence, maybe the paragraph, but how to put everything together, you know, is is a really is is a difficult one for me. I mean, I started out with a a very basic um, approach methodologically, and that is to just say. It sounds ridiculous, but to say what I think happened in its kind of um, it, it, as a kind of, in a brute fact way, and then what I thought about it, um, you know, as a but that to me was just to simplify the task, so I didn't have to go off and you know if I was I was having to make stuff up and then explain things, and and so part of it was just this matter of raw description not just description of events but description of what i thought about particular events and where i don't know what's happened or where i think something happened but i can't believe it at some level yeah i have let that stand i have memories that seem to me to be vivid but when i think about them they can't be real you know and and where that's happened i've tried to just say that in the book this this is what i remember but i don't believe it that could have happened you know like so but that to me is part of the experience the experience of it as it stands as it stands now um a, as for narrating a history i mean i love frederick jamison you talk about the obertsman oh, miss book which is an amazing is an amazing book I, I like frederick jamison history is what hurts and i think a part of it is it is narrated by Comedy and tragedy. I mean, the book is is about a lot of pain, but my fundamental orientation hasn't really doesn't really come across a lot of the time. But my one of the other fundamental ways I look at life is in, in terms of comedy, like and and the absurdity of my own behaviour. Um, and I think that's that's an important thing in the book too, because it's sort of just the way I perceive things, the way I, I think about things. I don't know whether I've got you. Your question may have slipped out. Or how I structured it look i started i started with i started with a couple of scenes and then reflecting on those scenes dragged me back into things that I preceded it so it's not a straight chronology as you know it starts you know um from a scene of scoring drugs and then winds its way around to the present in a pretty circuitous way um I don't know whether it works or not but that's that that was that was how it (laughs) that was how it was yeah that's how we decided the book should end up being
1: well it works for me i'm sure it'll work for a lot of listeners um and there are fascinating moments in there where you sort of meditate on the the dealer what the hell does the dealer want like the dealer could just sell drugs and be gone, but it's like dealers want audiences too. You know, this, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the st- the staging, the theater of of uh, of these bizarre lives we have. Um, yeah,
2: it's an amazing. It's an amazing. They've got an amazing job to do, and, and it's not an impersonal exchange like a, you know, just going to the supermarket. But they're not your friend either. It's this very bizarre. Exchange that stands somewhere between like a gift economy and an exchange economy. They're they're sort of an impartial economic agent, but they're not because what they're doing is illegal. So it it's a very bizarre um, and interesting series of exchanges with dealers. And I, of course, with an interest in anthropology, could never stop thinking about that aspect of of things as well. So yeah, you know, I try to talk about what those things look like um, and I think what they mean too, maybe in cultural terms and
1: yeah. It's ter- it's, a, it's terrific, you know. Um, and uh, just briefly on irrationality, reason, rationality again, your articulate battle, uh, facade wall, onslaught you put up to pr- to protect the addiction. This comes through again and again in, in On Drugs. Um, had me thinking about... Uh, approaches that have been tried in psychiatry and other things before or in the parallels to psychiatry and anti-psychiatry. So transcendentalism or, or um, primal scream, deep sleep therapy, anything to break, like make a tear like you were saying before or to to knock a person out. And ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, shock treatment, I guess is, is kind of akin to that. It's like, just shut up, <laughs> whack. yeah. Like, yeah, well, it, bypass, it bypasses reason entirely,
2: right? There's two ways to change someone's mind about something, and, and one is to try to convince them of something. The other is to maybe give them a brain operation. You know, like there, there's there's different ways inside the skull. Um, I didn't get that much. You know, I, mind you, I I saying I didn't get that much from ACT. I've spoken to people who spoke to me when I came out, and they said, oh, no, you seem you seemed quite a bit better. So can't even be trusted on that but my um i just remember at the time that i was getting it the biggest thing for me i was in such pain emotionally that the biggest benefit to me for ect was the general anesthetic every day it was i was getting it every day and it got a you know it allowed me a chance to die for a couple of hours every day outside of sleep it's a sad thing to admit now but that was what I look forward to is just getting knocked out um, and whether it had an impact beyond that, you know, I, I don't think it did, but I've got friends who say that it did. So who are you going to believe?
1: And what about Australia? So, I mean, you know, where we are as part of what we feel, what we do, what we hear, see, smell. And as you're saying about the insider, outsider, objective, subjective thing, can you place this? Um, I mean, can you step aside and look at this? You being set in Australia, you happening here in Australia. Like, is it? Is there anything think, about this that is Australian?
2: Well, I think it is. I, you know, I really, I. I or or is, is
1: everything about it? Is there anything about it that's not Australia? I mean, what is that? What? How does Australia figure in you in your life? Like,
2: well, I mean, I. The thing is, is that I, I do, I. I mean, I do feel like a stranger anywhere else in the world. This is the problem, and I mean, mascot never looks so beautiful as when you're flying back in. And I, I loathe to say that because live in a place that's revoltingly nationalistic, and and it's and and it's you know, it's not anything I'd ever admit to. You know, it's very uncool also to admit to liking Australia. Um, if you're as if you're an academic in the humanities, but it is Australian in so, and there's a lot to dislike about Australia, and um, huge amounts to dislike about it. But the fact is, is that um, how Australian or not Australian it is 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 a difficult thing to answer. What I do know, and what people have remarked on, is how situated in place it is, how um grounded it is in the streets of the inner west of Sydney, how particular a lot of my memories are of structures um of the quality of light of urban environments um and i don't know why that is but for me it's absolutely inseparable from the geography from the urban environment in which this thing gets played out and i think this is when the publishers talked overseas publishers one of the things they have said is it seems one of the limitations of the book is that it seems so grounded in Sydney. It seems so um, so particular to a cultural environment um, in a way that a lot of books aren't. And I guess that's just partly because of the way I think. I do think in terms of of voice and and structure and light. And um, despite the fact that I'm a lover, you know, just one of these word tragics. Um, the way I tend to think is scenic. Um, it's a, a it's I, I'm very visual in the way that I imagine things. So I think it's yeah, it's very hard to separate it from that context. Whether you want to call that Australian context, a Sydney context, an inner west context, a whatever, and it's that kind of parochialism. People might just sort of think, oh, I can't stand that stuff, you know. But th- the fact is, I think it's always crap to yank these things out of context um, in in that sense. And it's not really up to me to judge to what extent it, it extends outside those circumstances. I really hope it does, um, but uh, who knows?
1: <laughs> what about um, articulateness or otherwise? To, to me, as a dual US-Australian national, um, I, I find uh, Australia an inarticulate sort of non- or pre-verbal place in a way, you know, um, which I think D.H. Lawrence is nailed in in Kangaroo with um, a certain quality that comes through presence, not speech. And if mm. you are hyper-articulate, um, GED-up kid and youngster and stuff, are, are the drugs that eventually give you relief from OCD, are, are they also a way to... to to tone down or or relax into a place that has more implied than said a lot of the time? Is it a... It's a great
2: question, Matt.
1: Look, I I think it is. I think it's a way of just turning... It's
2: a way of turning the volume down. I mean, I I always seem... There always seem to be going... Like too much going on in my head, um, both for myself and often for the people around me. Um, This, you know, my mother saying you just talk for the sake of talking you know this was one of the things and this this desire um and of course in australia that gets marked in a gender way too so you know i mean it's it's girl behavior it's gay behavior it's and and so there's a lot of i copped a lot of targeting as a kid for that for that sort of thing and i think you're right australia does have a particular attitude to verbal expression but it, again it's a strange it's a strange situation we're also a country with a huge number of pretty great literary you know magazines and um but yeah you, you could it'd be, we produce a lot of very interesting writers and thinkers but it's not a culture that you would ever think of as a as an intellectual or a writerly culture so there's this there's a bizarre tension there but yeah i think the the drugs did end up being a kind of an aesthetic turning they often got this sense that the world is too harsh and sometimes i mean that in quite a literal sense that Sun's too bright. The light's too hard. The angles are too sharp. Um, things uh, feel too intense on my skin, and and my brain is working at a pace that is just not uh, not right. There's, there's there's gears that have been kicked up, um, and drugs did offer. A, you know uh, varying in that speed i say in the book that drugs basically do alter perceptions of tempo of of of, of time they do muck around with space but but time is a huge thing that they mess with and i think yeah it, it it recalib they did for a long time recalibrate a nervous system that was overactive in an environment that seemed too much
1: mm and it's um it brings to mind like the velvet underground and the uh, the band and new york city and amphetamines you know and the speed scene and uh, throughout um new york culture with in the sixties seventies and so on before the kind of heroin or even earlier fifties sixties seventies but um to speed up to the pace of the city around you, and, and like to, to, to accelerate, you know, by quaffing um, you know fistfuls of speed pills, Dexies and so on. But you're you're slowing down to a like more of a torpor of the summertime Australia, or um, this is you know this is the, your youth is a is a few decades back now. So Sydney's kind of changed a lot since the early stages of the book of, on drugs, but it, it's acclimatizing in a different way. Um, but lastly, just to to wrap things up, then c- could you tell us, like, so on drugs is out from Giramondo. Um What have you been doing since, or what are you into now? Any kind of writing projects?
2: I'm doing I'm doing a few things. Um, I'm there's some stuff I'm just finishing finishing off. I'm doing I, you know, I'm writing a couple of book reviews. I'm also doing a a book for as at the moment of of short fiction, although to what extent it's fiction, I'm mucking around with the idea of biographies, biographies of artists and intellectuals, and some of them I'm just making up, and some of them are half based on truths. and um, And there's a there's a short story coming out in Westerly that's that's gonna that's part of that collection. But I'm also doing more theoretical philosophical work on kind of imitative patterns in argumentation and and um, yeah, a bunch of other things. I'm also very interested now, and I guess I have been for a long time, in the relationship between autobiography and philosophy. What what does it mean? You read Wittgenstein, and the guy uses I and we a lot. And I start to wonder, who is he talking about when he's talking about we? What is this we, and what is what is the role of the I or the we in philosophical writing? It's be, you know it's obvious in people like Rousseau and well, it's actually not that obvious but that you know when, when they're people writing autobiography, what about when they're not writing autobiography So I, I'm interested in that relationship between voice and style um, and in philosophical work and also doing a little bit of um, some stuff on that as well and a few other things but yeah whether any of you know how much of that will come out. Who knows? I don't know how much of it – it depends on how much of it I finish and how much of it, once I've finished, other people want to look at. So, yeah.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I'll just um, tell the listeners again, this has been a chat with Christopher Fleming, Associate Professor at the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. We've been discussing his acclaimed memoir, On Drugs – out from Giramondo. It came out a few months back, late 2019. And uh, I'm Dr. Matt Thompson. So thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed the chat.
2: Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it.